Welcome friends to the Someone Gets Me podcast. I am your host, Diane Allen, and I am so delighted that you're here. This podcast was created because I believe there is a visionary leader inside each one of us who is waiting to be seen. In each episode of Someone Gets Me, you will hear useful tips from successful visionaries who will share their stories about how being seen has allowed them to take their vision out into the world with action. Taboo Topics for Gifted Parents with Julia Hodgson. Hi, Julia. Hello. I'm so happy you were here today. And y'all probably recognize her face because she did a podcast interview not very long ago with her husband about smart people dating. So if you haven't checked out that episode, you probably want to go listen to that because it was a blast. And so now we're back again to talk about taboo topics for gifted parents because everybody has those things that go on in their minds that you don't tell anyone or you think you shouldn't or something like that. And so Julia is an expert in all kinds of parenting topics and especially in, around being a new parent and pregnancy and dealing with all those transitions along with all of her other skill set. So we're gonna start there. We're gonna have Julia tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got to this space where talking about taboo topics even interests you. Like, how do we get here? And then we'll dive in from there. Sure. So I'm a psychologist. I also have a degree in human sexuality. So just jumping right in with <laughs> things people don't like to talk about. And I've been, I've been working in the field for about a decade, no, over a decade at this point. And one thing that I just like keep finding is that I'll talk to people about things and they'll be like, you're the first person who's ever said that you're the first person who's ever acknowledged that. And it's just like time and time again. And it just made me want to be like, we all need to talk about this then. And so I try to do that. <laughs> I just try to talk about everything nobody else talks about because it's ridiculous that we don't. I mean, in terms of like the pregnancy and parenting piece, I was interested in it before I became a pregnant person or parent myself, just because of the people I worked with in my job. Just over and over, there'd be this shame or the, these questions or this feeling alone. And, and I just felt like you can't be the only one. And then I'd talk to the next person and the next person and I kept repeating. And then when I went through it myself and am going through it myself, it, it was like, oh yeah, there's all that stuff. I know these things and I still feel all of them, which has just really deepened my passion for it. Cause now I can speak to it from a place of sort of professional experience as well as very personal. <laughs> Right. And, and you bring up a good point. It's like we can know something intellectually and we can have an understanding in our head and having the visceral and emotional experience is different. Mm -hmm. It adds a richness to the understanding, but just to, to know something isn't all there is. And so what do you see as a really common or one of those kind of threads you see going through like new parents, like you have two young, very young children who are amazing. Like the very first interview I did with your husband was right before Father's Day. And I think that your baby was born like within 48 hours of me recording the interview. Right. <laughs> and then we were talking about that a little bit and I'm like, okay. And so then as I've gotten to know you more, I'm like, how cool. They're both really neat. So what's the thread that kind of goes through this new parent experience that you've seen not only professionally, but like in your world? I think, I think the biggest thing that ties everyone together is this constant feeling and fear of having no clue what you're doing and being afraid you're going to screw up your kid. <laughs> right. And, and I think especially, I mean, I, everybody deals with it, but I think especially for people who are used to knowing what's going on or being able to research the answer or or, you know, watch a documentary or things and then know how to do it, boy, parenting sure turns all that upside down on its head because it, not only do they not give you an instruction manual, it would be useless because every single child requires a different parent, basically. And so when the baby's born that everybody's getting to know each other, mm -hmm. even more, you know, in the, in the external human form, right? And then it's like, oh, it, what's in the book doesn't apply here. 
No, but people talk about it as though there is a right way to do it. Mm. You know, if you don't use this method, your kid is screwed up. I, it drives me nuts. When I read parenting or pregnancy manuals, they're all, everyone is so, not everyone, but most of them are very biased. And so they say, this is why our method is good. And here's why you're harming your child if you do something different. And so it's, there's all these different phrases. There's all these different camps and all of them can be right. None of them is actually wrong, but the way we talk about it, you know, do this or it hurts your kid, do this or it hurts your kid. It just hurts the parents and the kid because we feel so insecure about what to do. Um, Right. And the child feels the insecurity. Mm -hmm. And so everybody loses in those kinds of situations. Yeah. And it's that much harder to trust your gut when people are telling you there's something different than you're doing. That's the right answer. Mm, Right. And so if you're a gifted adult having a baby, the chances are the baby is going to be gifted too. And when you got two gifted adults having babies, then probably that's there. Mm -hmm. And so now we have a whole different experience on top of just the new parent experience. So how has it been for you raising your two little ones? And your experience with all these taboo topics of even just sharing about Julia's experience. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different ways, places I could go with this. I mean, so my, my children are one and three, but the three-year-old has already made it clear that she's very precocious. She's, she's sort of been ahead of a number of milestones. And, you know, my, my partner and I will be like, okay, we're not we're not diagnosing, we are not classifying, but oh, look, she just put a full sentence together and she's only supposed to be able to do one or two words at a time. And so it's just like back and forth between what we know intellectually, what we know experience, experientially, and also when you feel like, hold on, let's just be present with our child. Let's, let's not worry about if they're at the milestone or ahead or behind or what that means, or is my kid a genius when they're two years old? Because yeah. it's like put on the brakes there's a lot of that well sure because you both of you have all this education Mm -hmm. and all this understanding and so that the brain wants to compartmentalize and put things in spots and make it all manageable but yet just being present Mm -hmm. isn't always linear like that not at all (laughs) and that's not how kids work I mean that's not how humans work you know there's not this single development or single sign that leads to one thing that leads to another, you know, my kid being able to be very verbal at two doesn't necessarily mean she's going to be verbal at 12. I mean, it's, it actually does. It seems likely it will follow, but we don't know. I mean, we're just going to have to know her at a, as a three-year-old, as a four-year-old, as a five-year-old and, and sort of follow her with where she's going and, and try to help her, but, but not put her in this box so early that we're like, okay, you're gifted. That means this, this, and this. Right. That, that's not fair to her. Right. It's not fair to her and it can create um, stress for the parents to have boxes and labels just thrown on things. You know, even people I've, I've worked with a lot of parents who um, their kids having a hard time and, they want to put a mental illness label on the, on the kid, even though the kid's not mentally ill, because it gives them something to grab onto for why this is happening. Mm-hmm. So if something's happening to it behaviorally that you don't understand and, and you're helping the parent out, what are some things you could help them do to ease their fear maybe a little bit or to give them a strategy that's not so reactionary and boxing in? I mean, I think it is really important to listen to your kid for what they need. And this, this applies even to kids who aren't talking. This applies to babies all the way up is, you know, we're going to read the book that says they need this amount of screen screen time. They need this amount of tummy time. They need this, they need that. And those things may be good guidelines, but also if you're with your kid and it seems like you are fighting them to make them do something that just is not working for them, that's your kid telling you that that's not the right thing for them. Mm -hmm. 
I feel like I, this is sort of, this is a very light example, but I see things online of people being like, I'm trying to make my kid do these crafts and they don't want a color. They don't want to glue the feathers on the turkey or, or whatever it is. And, and I just, I look at those and it's like, if your kid hates to color, maybe we don't color. Maybe we go get Play-Doh or get blocks or do something like, I love the idea of the creativity and the exploration, but crayons are the wrong thing. Let's find something else. Like let's, what is your kid attracted to? What does your kid go towards? Go with them towards that thing. And that it, it takes, it takes the external definitions of what your child should be and it ignores those and it's you and the child figuring it out together, which which is how we get these children who are excited about the things they're learning, who are doing the things we want, we want them to do because the things we want them to do are the things they want to do. Right. And so yeah. it, it just, it works. It works better that way. It's hard. It's hard to let go of all the rules and all the, you know, things you see on social media, the perfect setups with the themes and the colors and all of that. But, you know, if your kid just, yeah, wants to do whatever, pile um, empty boxes on top of each other. That's cool. That's building. It doesn't need to look pretty in a photo to be something really great for them. Right. And so that then requires the, the adults, the parents, or the big, I call them the big people, all the adults around, to relax some of their own structure that they think the kid should be doing or their own expectations or their own, this is the way it is in this family, or this is the way or you will like football because I love football, or you will love purple because I love purple or those kinds of things. So it requires some open-mindedness on the parents' side or the big people side, not just parents and all the adults around the child. And so how do you help parents become more open-minded who are fighting themselves with this belief or that belief and and um, I'm sure you've run into that where they're struggling with their getting out of their own way. Like they want to be present with their kid, but there's all this other stuff. So what would you say to those parents? You know, it, it's funny you mentioned like the liking football, because I, I feel like maybe especially in the gifted world and everything, you come across these parents who had expectations for what their child would be like, you know, perhaps in a way of liking the same, liking sports, liking the same sports, wanting to do these things. And so they, this is, this is, this is one of the really hard things is we have these fantasies of what our life with our children are going to look like. Mm -hmm. And then our, ch our children don't match those molds of these imaginary kids in our heads. And so actually part of our development as parents is letting go of those fantasies and replacing mm -hmm. them with what's actually there. So you may have a fantasy of throwing a football around with your son, but your son wants to draw cartoons, draw comics. So maybe you know nothing about that, but you can sit next to them and say like, hey, can you show me what you're doing? You know, it's, and I think it's okay to grieve the loss of that fantasy you had in your head. That doesn't mean anything about your capabilities as a parent. It doesn't mean anything about how much you love your child and want to be there. It's just, you had a, you had a thought, you had this sort of imaginary family and you're having to let that go. And it's, that's, that's one of the things I think we don't talk about. There's one of those taboos is that you can be disappointed or sad at the loss of th something you thought you were going to have and still be totally invested and in love with and committed to the child or family that you do have. Yes. And I think people have trouble separating those. I think, I think you're totally on it. And in fact, I'm sitting here listening to you and I go, well, I teach um, that there's eight kinds of pain that cause grief. And one of them is imaginational pain where we make up fantasies. And then when the world doesn't live to our fantasies, we have grief because it's not what our brain thought it would be. And and as you're talking, I'm like, yes. And that's a really big thing. And so you can have both. You can let go of that story and that mm -hmm. fantasy and still be in the moment with your child. And you don't have to beat yourself up for having the fantasy, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I think we all do that. All of us humans, we make up stories about how it's going to be. And most of the time it's not that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
and I, and I think, I mean, this is just one of those realms where it is huge. I mean, it, it's funny, right before I, I came up here to talk to you, I was, I was standing in the kitchen. I was looking at, so I have a girl and then a boy and I was looking at my, at my son and I, and I just, I looked at him and I said, I can't believe I have a boy because I wanted all girls. I did, but I, I really struggled with admitting that. And I really struggled when I found out he was a boy. Um, and this is one of those, you know, this is a little bit before parenting, this is in the pregnancy part, but that idea that I, I can be bummed forever that I don't have all girls um, or two girls or whatever. Also, like at the same time, I am so grateful and in love with that little boy downstairs and a little bit bewildered, but like I can have both. And I feel like so often when you admit something like that, people are like, well, you should be grateful that you have a child at all. You, you're saying that you don't love them as much. If, if you admit that you wanted them to be a different gender or sex or something, that means that they're going to feel rejected or not good enough. And I don't believe that. I think we're just acknowledging that we're human. I think we're acknowledging that yeah, I had this image in my head of what I grew up with. I'm one of three girls. So I was like, okay, I know girls. I'm going to have all girls. That'd be great. And I don't. And it is also going to be great. It is going to be great in a different way than I thought it would. And I have no idea what that looks like, which can be scary. But I, but I know it's going to be good. I know there's, it's going to be something different and special. And that's and that's just part of it. That's part of the like letting go of parenting that is so hard. Right. And it, it doesn't mean that you love him less. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean you were wrong for thinking it was going to be that way, that all girls, because that's what you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's really exciting. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I like sharing that well, except even, even as I'm saying this, like there's this piece of me that's like, someone's going to listen to this and be like, oh, that selfish woman who mm-hmm. other people are struggling to have children at all. And here she is wishing she had a different child. And, you know, I worry about, I do worry that people are going to sort of judge me for it. But I also feel like it's really important to say it out loud because it's not out there. You do mm-hmm. see little glimpses of it. You see people admitting it, but in like, they don't talk about it in the books. They don't talk about it in the major publications. Like it's just not mentioned, which makes you feel like there's something wrong with you. Um, so even though I feel like a little nervous, I feel, I feel so important to, to admit, to talk about um, that. It's not a shameful thing. It doesn't have to be a shameful thing. It's just a thing. Right. right. Well, it's our fantasy. We think it's going to be this and mm-hmm. it's not that, but that doesn't make it right, wrong or bad. It doesn't even necessarily make it better. It's just different. And that's totally cool. And so there's a level of integrity and honesty when we start really looking within and saying, well, this is kind of what I would like. You know, and I remember um, when I was little asking my parents, did you you think I was a boy or girl? Did you want me to be a boy or girl? And they would always say, it didn't matter as long as you were healthy. And I always said, I don't believe that. (laughs) No, I don't totally believe that. Like, I believe on some level that's true, but I also think that the natural normal human psyche is create the story, create what we think it's going to be because that's how our brains work, creating the story around it. And thankfully we can change the story and it's a totally cool, but I, I think that there's more to it than, oh, as long as you're healthy. Right. That that's what we feel like we have to say. Yes. Yeah. And even when I was little, I knew that wasn't all of it. I didn't really have language for something different at the time, but I remember thinking, no, there's more, you know, mm-hmm. and then my, I have a younger brother and there's only two of us. And so then the conversation was about, we have a boy and a girl and then that's, that's it. Then we don't need any more kids or, you know, whatever. And I'm like, uh, well, well, so what would have happened if he, you know, if that second child was a girl, would you have kept going to get a boy or, you know, and there was never any answer. So as a child, I was quite confused mm-hmm. when I would ask these questions. And, and I remember being little and not being able to wrap my mind around the parental answers. And so I think, you know, what you're saying about talking about things in a real way and being human 
-hmm. doesn't hurt anybody. I think it helps. I agree. I think we, um, we try to shield and protect our children, other people. And, and I mean, yes, you want to make sure things are at a level people can understand, kids can understand, but I don't believe in, in hiding things because the more you hide it, the more bad it feels like, not just that it feels to you, but when it comes out that you wanted two girls or, or whatever it is, then it's like, oh, that was a shameful, bad thing. And so I should feel bad now that I know it. Um, mm -hmm. But if it's, but if I'm talking to my children, it's like, yeah, I initially wanted this. Um, but then here you are. And like, how amazing is this? And yeah, like it would have been fun to have two girls. It's also fun to have a girl and a boy. I just didn't, I didn't know yet. Like you taught me how this can be amazing. And that's also a really cool thing. Definitely. It's very, it's very exciting to see like, oh, the road ahead is different than I imagine. And it's even cooler. <laughs> because it's, it's the real road. It's where we're going and we're going together. Mm-hmm. Right. And I like the together part. So what's another taboo with, with parents that, that you've been hearing about? Like, what about like all the emotional swings? Like, you know, we hear about postpartum depression. We hear about um, sympathy pains. We hear about all of these different things. And so what are some of the other taboos that you see that we would like to smash right now and kind of help people open up a little bit? I mean, I, I think you're touching on the piece of mental health. Um, that is so, so important and also so stigmatized. Um, we're only just starting to talk about postpartum depression and that doesn't even get at postpartum anxiety, OCD, psychosis, and the fact that um, mental health disorders, illnesses, conditions, whatever word feels right to you, you're just as likely to start experiencing that during pregnancy as you are after the fact. And we don't even talk about the fact that this stuff can start when you get pregnant or somewhere along the way. Um, but then there's this feeling that if you're dealing with a mental illness, like postpartum depression or something like that, that you're not a good parent, that it's because you don't love your kid enough because you're doing something wrong. Um, there's a fear that people will not only judge you, but maybe will deem you a not good parent and maybe want to take your child away from you. Um, there's just a lot of, there's, there's so much fear around it. And, and this assumption that if you're experiencing something, you are automatically going to be and do the worst possible version of it. You know, if, if you are dealing with depression or anxiety or even at the beginnings of some psychosis, it doesn't mean you're going to go and kill your child. It means, you know, but that's what people assume. Mental illness means violence, danger, all of these awful things. And they, they do happen. There's a case that just happened pretty recently in California of a person, a, a woman with postpartum psychosis who, who killed her children. She thought she was, she thought she was helping. Um, but she also, the thing that really gets me about this story is not actually her piece of it but that there were so many opportunities for providers and caregivers to notice and help her. And none of them did because they didn't talk about it because we didn't talk about it. Like, we don't even know, like how many people know that postpartum psychosis is like a legitimate treatable thing that can happen just from giving birth from, yeah, from going through that. Right. And, the tragic part is the helping people kept the secret mm -hmm. and it allowed this, this woman to suffer and do things she would never have done if somebody would have intervened and helped her out. And when you're going through something that hard, it's hard to ask for help. Mm -hmm. So it, I think it's the helper people. It's like, it's on our shoulders as the helpers. Cause I'm one of those people. Yeah to ask the right questions or do something, take an action on that person's behalf to help them. Yeah. And, and, you know, this, I'm talking about this, this story in the news and these other things. I mean, I also want to bring it back to, I dealt with postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm a psychologist. 
I have had a history with depression. And yet when I had postpartum depression, I didn't realize I had postpartum depression. I had this baby. I felt disconnected. I didn't feel that warmth, that attachment that I looked in his eyes and fell in love moment that, you know, they talk about because here's a secret. I think like 80% of parents don't feel that right away when they give birth, just as an aside. <laughs> um, I think I've read it was that high, but regardless, I, I dealt with this for months before I was able to actually put a word to it. And I have a doctorate in this and I didn't recognize it. I was like, oh, it's the blues, the baby blues, whatever. Um, which is a thing, but it's a thing that ends after two weeks. Um, or, oh, here's what I actually thought. Oh, I'm just not a good mother. Oh, I am just failing this baby because I can't be strong enough to connect with them. Um, and that's devastating and, and shameful. You feel like there's something wrong with you. And so even though I'm this person that I, I believe in talking about it, I believe it's normal. I believe that you should ask for help. I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my mom. I didn't tell my partner. I mean, he knew, like he could see it, but um, I, I didn't tell anyone the, the extent of what I was dealing with because I felt ashamed. Um, but it's, it's also something that is so experienced by so many people. And perhaps if I had told more people or I don't know, put, it, it's so tough to put it on the person who is struggling, but yeah, I, I feel like there was opportunity to get help sooner, but at the same time, I couldn't even have imagined what that would look like. Right. And so sometimes that first reaching out might be some, you know, saying something general, like, cause there's no words for it. And if you don't know you're going through it or you think it's something like, Oh, you minimize it. Right. Mm -hmm. It'll go past or whatever. And then you got that inner thing of, I have a doctorate in this stuff. I'm not a rookie <laughs> and I still am struggling because I'm still a human being trying to make it. Mm -hmm. So how did you find your way out of the depression? Um, well, I, I tried being honest on those screeners that I got at my one postpartum visit with my midwives at the, the practice I used and they talked to me about it and they said, Oh, well, you're a psychologist. You, you know, these things. I'm like, I do. And they offered to, to call and do follow-ups, reach out to me. And they actually never did that. Um, which is a failing. The pediatrician also did those screeners, but they would be like, so you're having a tough time. And I would say, yeah. And I didn't really want to talk to them. So they dropped it too. Um, I mean, what ultimately ended up happening was what ended up helping was admitting what was going on. Um, for me, the first step was actually admitting it in a journal. Um, I'm a big journaler and it was when I was able to say it to myself that mm -hmm. then I was able to say it to my partner. And even later than that, I was able to say it to my mother and my mother-in-law and other people that I trusted, um, which actually it may have ended after those four. I mean, there, I wasn't, it took me a while to be able to talk about it. Um, and so once you talked about it and kind of like shedding the light of truth on that, mm -hmm. it, it, as you shared it, what I'm hearing is that it started taking the power away from the secret, mm -hmm. which then kind of opened the doors for you to experience relief. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, so there's, there's a social media campaign called speak the secret. It's like hashtag speak the secret. And it's run by the postpartum stress center, which is in Philly. And it's, they basically asked people to write the real secrets, like what's going on, what's really going on in their head after giving birth or as they're parenting. And they put them out in social media in sort of like a cartoon form, a comic form. Um, but there's a whole book called good moms have scary thoughts. And that book actually helped too. I really recommend it. Um, 
because it's, you see pictures of someone saying, oh yeah, I'm fine. Just a little tired. And then you see their thought bubble of all of the things going through their head. Is my kid sleeping enough? Am I using the right method? Well, people think I'm, you know, I can't let anyone know. And it, um, and so it has this representation of the secrets. And then also the book happens to have like little activities to do to kind of face some of that. So I read that book um, because I needed that reminder. I needed that someone else has said this before. Someone else has experienced this. Yes. It's not as bad that I have now. Right. It doesn't make you this, this really terrible person. It just means it's a process that happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's really powerful. You know, and you think about it because you're not the only one. Mm-mm. You know, but yet when we're in the throes of these kinds of things, it feels like we're the only one. Yeah. And, and one of the things that these struggles have in common is they cause you to, to pull back, to isolate, to not share, which makes it worse. Yes. Which makes you pull back more. And yeah. so it's very easy to get stuck in this like downward spiral of feeling bad, withdrawing. So you feel worse. So you withdraw more. And that's, I mean, it, that can be so toxic until you're able to just reach out just a little bit so that you're not totally alone in it. Right. Exactly. I'm glad you said that. Cause I think that that cycle, that downward cycle can get started almost in a seductive kind of way. And then pretty soon the person really is stuck, which is why I think it's important for those of us who are around to say what we see. Mm-hmm. Like, Gee, Julie, you stop talking. You usually talk. What happened? What, what do you, what's up with these one word answers? <laughs> like, that's not, how, that's not your language set. <laughs> yeah. And even if you say nothing, you, you can't unhear that person loving and caring about you. So it opens the door for when you're ready, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So any other threads, any other taboo threads that you've noticed in your own world or in your practice? I'm, I, uh, I think often about the whole sexuality part, you're a sexuality psychologist and boy, is there a lot going on around that these days. And it's been going on in secret all along. It's just now more awake. And so um, what do you have to say about that whole idea? (laughs) I know we could go on for about a week on it. Oh my gosh. Yes. But like, you know, I think it's really important to realize that, you know, again, as a parent, we have, the idea of what we think it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. And then what if it's not the same? Yeah. Well, and there's, and there's also this idea of how you think you're going to be as a parent. And then you may not meet those expectations. Right. Like I think about even with my children, um, you know, I'm going to treat them the same. They're going to everything's equal, not one thing more, one thing, you know, I'm not going to use more affectionate terms with my girl than my boy, stuff like that. But they've done, they've done research on this. They've done experiments that we just inherently touch less, talk less, are less affectionate with boys than girls. And I, I hope I'm not, I act, but it actually means I'm very intentional. I'm like, I mean, he's, he's one. So like, it's, it's probably different, but I think I'm like, you know what, I'm going to still do these things when he's older. I'm going to be intentional about it. Um, Am I doing things? Am I calling him buddy and her sweetheart? You know? And so while I will call both of them sweetheart or both of them buddy and they're these little things, but it is, but it's, there's so much that's just ingrained in us just from how we've been socialized, just the very subtle cues from the world that we do, um, that some of us, I mean, like myself, like I'm trying to undo, but when so much of it is just like so subtle, it's very hard. Yes. Um, and when I think about the sexuality stuff, like we really like labeling things as boy stuff or girl stuff people, you know, when boys or girls do this and, and I actually, they have some like kids books about this, like very young kids books um, that are like, you know, there's boys and girls and people who are both and people who are neither. And 
and just sort of expanding the definition of gender, which is tricky. Well, which seems like it's tricky for a kid, but if you're like, nope, this is just how it is. Here's a bunch of different types of people. For the kid, they're like, okay. Because this is how they're learning about it. They're learning about it from you. Um, but if we say, you know, well, when a boy and a girl start dating or whatever, you know, we're immediately limiting that worldview. When two people start dating, when people start dating, you know, there's like so many different ways that you can just subtly shift your language that can set set a foundation for it not being as hard for the kid as they grow older, even though it means a little bit of extra work on our part to be so intentional about it. Right. I think being intentional and having awareness, you know, that, that there are lots of options mm -hmm. and we have, as an adult, it's our responsibility to kind of get outside of our own bias and be willing to do that. And I don't know that a lot of people because of fear want to get outside of their own bias or they even realize, realize it's there. It's a lot of awareness and growth opportunity for all of us as time unfolds, I think. Mm -hmm. And, and the things we're doing now, you know, in five years, we might have more awareness and realize, Oh, we need to modify that. Yes. And like, that's okay. That doesn't mean we're screwing up now. It means we're doing the best we can with the information we have now. Exactly. Because time keeps moving, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's going to change. Yeah, it's good mm -hmm. that we keep learning. It's good that we keep refining and fixing and being more thoughtful about who we are including and who we are excluding. Those are all good things that we are paying more attention to. And yeah, we can deal with the discomfort of having to relearn things or having to acknowledge that we mess up and move on. And, right. and like that stuff, it's, it's all okay. It may be uncomfortable, but it's actually good when you take a step back. Yeah. Gives us opportunity. Yeah. So what are some things that you and your partner have done together as parents of these beautiful young children that you think would serve somebody? Like if somebody's listening to you and they're like, oh my God, I held that secret too, or I did this, or I can so relate to her, but I'm not sure I want to admit it. And the two of you, I'm sure have found some ways to kind of navigate Mm -hmm. some of these things. And so would you be willing to share some of the solutions, some of the things the two of you have learned or do, are doing to like kind of support the ongoing family growth, you mm -hmm. know, for the person who actually wants to like expand, what would be something they could do? Um, I mean, you know, with, with me and my, my partner, and we talked about this in the last podcast too, that we did it's so much about being willing to communicate with one another. Mm -hmm. And actually one of the big things we've had to communicate about is how much a relationship can take a back burner when you have kids and the strain it can put on that. Um, and that there are moments of feeling very disconnected or feeling like you're by yourself or, or even feeling like this is the role I have to fit as mom as dad, as whoever you are. And, and being able to say to the other person, I feel like I have to do all of these things. And I know that's not coming from you, but also I'm really struggling with it because I feel like I'm letting you down. We've had those discussions. I feel like I should be able to do this as a parent and this as a partner and this um, as a family member to other people. And I can't. And, and those have been really powerful moments, not because we've found solutions, but just because we've been able to say, yeah, I can't either. Or I do want you to know, I don't expect you to do that thing. I, I am happy to be the one who takes on this chore or this piece, or, you know what, maybe we need to just stop trying to do this thing to go visit someone every week. Maybe we need to give ourselves permission to just focus on us for a little while. Um, it's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's not just talking, but it's like permission giving to, to be struggling and permission giving to find solutions that may not be what people say you quote should do. Right. Being in that solution mindset. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was working with a family that has, um, 
three gifted children. And when the youngest one was born, they really struggled a lot. Like the first two, they had adjustments, but they kind of, but when the third one came, it was like, Ooh, whirlwind. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things we talked about was giving themselves permission to bring help into the home mm-hmm. because they were trying to work both work full time. They were trying to take care of the house. They lived on acreage and take care of the yard and do the house and remodel the bed and, and do all these things while raising the children. And they were stressing themselves out and they had themselves on such a tight schedule that a two minute hold up in traffic just cascaded everything into oblivion. And, um, and so I said, why don't you like consider getting some help for the things that are not children related, like hire somebody to mow the yard or how about these other little projects that you can get somebody in to ease your stress mm-hmm. so you can be the parent that you want to be. And at first they had a really hard time with letting that go because they thought they would be failing as parents if they didn't do it all. Yes. I said, you don't have to do it all. It's, it's not about that. It's about where's your priorities. And once they could make that shift, it's been beautiful ever since. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's like seeing value in the things that someone described it to me once. Cause I was feeling, I was feeling guilty about working outside the home and they were like, listen, at this stage of your kid's life, anyone can give them a bottle, put them down for a nap, entertain them in the afternoon. Only you can provide the stability that, and the role model and the other things you are providing by being a person who's working the job you're doing. And I think it's similar, like anyone can mow the lawn. Not everyone can sit down for a family meal Mm -hmm. and talk about how your day was. So it's, it's, it's finding and honoring the things that are unique to you as a person and, and using the resources you have to farm out the other stuff. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think, and, and to give ourselves permission to do that, that we don't have to be superhuman or be like human machines. Yes. You know, that it, that there is, we can give ourselves that flexibility to kind of move around and not have to do everything all the time perfectly. Yeah. Accepting help is very hard. Yes. Especially when you're used to being very self-sufficient, very high achieving, mm-hmm. very independent. It, you said this before, it feel, it can feel like you're failing to ask for help. And, and I actually think that you are, you are doing something difficult and powerful when you ask for help, because you're acknowledging, first of all, you're setting a, a, an example that it's good to ask for help. We want kids to learn that help is good. (laughs) And also that we're not superhuman. We're not, we're not perfect. It's not, you know, parents are superheroes. Parents are people doing super things, doing superhuman things. Um, But like, we don't want to put the weight of having to be a superhero on people. You're doing super things. You're doing amazing things. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be that perfect figure. No, you don't have to be. In fact, in accepting and receiving help, asking for and receiving help. That is the perfect thing. Yes. You know, it's not, it's not the other way around where I'm not allowed to ask for help because we were taught that can't ask for help, but having help, that's a sign of interdependence, which means I'm an adult because when trying to be independent, we're still stuck in adolescence and Mm -hmm. too many people are stuck there. It's time to grow into interdependence. We're meant as adults to be interdependent with each other and serve each other and help each other out and cook meals or do whatever we need to do to help each other out with whatever that is. Yes. And being taught we can't receive it. That was a, a miss, a miss teaching that we all need to unlearn. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. And teach our children it. It's good to need help. Mm -hmm. It is need help. Not even just to want help. Right. Because it means you're connected. Right. It means you're connected and it means you're growing and you're expanding. Mm -hmm. And that's the goal. If everything was always easy and we never needed help, then there's a problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Oh my God. This is so fun. So is there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we get ready to to close the show? Um, I have a couple extra questions to ask, of course, but I just wanted (laughs) to make sure there wasn't something on, on your heart that you really wanted to share, because I think what you're talking about is very valuable. I know you have a book coming up. 
mm-hmm. that you're working on now. Um, that's in the writing stages of it. Is it too early or do you want to mention it a little bit and sure. so people can um, start looking for it since I know it's coming soon? Yes. Um, I, I am in the finding a publisher stage. So I have a literary agent. We've, yeah, we're doing all that, but I'm very excited about it. Um, the tentative title is Pregnancy Confidential. And it's just a book talking about the secrets and the taboos that nobody tells you about. So basically what we've just done for however long you and I have been talking. Um, and it, it's, it's very much, it's the whole point of it is let's talk about the things going on. Let's talk about how to take care of yourself, not just the child or children. Um, and, and just repeating and normalizing this idea that things can be hard and you can still be doing a great job. Right. That's true. We can have difficult times and it can be tricky and difficult and hard. And that doesn't mean we're bad. Yes. Because life can be a little tricky and messy and that's totally cool. Absolutely. Very cool. So um, as a mother of two young children mm-hmm. and a professional woman who works, all of these things, what do you do for your own self-care? How do you take care of Julia? My top two things, well, I like going outside with my children. So that's a self-care with them. Mm-hmm. I, like I mentioned, I journal. And so on days when I can't long journal, I make sure I get at least half a sentence in a one thing I'm grateful for. And then I do art. Oh, Even nice. if it's I like I was I was in a meeting earlier and I was just doodling circles because my arm was moving and there was pretty colors in front of me and it felt nice the um the crayon on the paper. So so those are my three. Those are my three big ones. Those are wonderful and I'm really glad you you talked about crayons and coloring circles because coloring mm-hmm. circles harmonizes the right and left hemispheres of the brain and allows the corpus callosum to talk to each other and and actually that's a really good anxiety treatment that I give people all the time is grab crayons because it helps bring you back to childhood and draw circles because the circles harmonize the brain. And so it's no wonder that you're in a meeting and the circles and the pretty colors come naturally because it's harmonizing and relaxing to our brain. Gosh, I love that. I didn't even know there was so much science behind it. I just thought it felt good. (laughs) Yeah, it does feel good. And and there's also science behind it to the feeling good part, right? So they... (laughs) When the science and the feel good people agree, then we have a thing. <laughs> magic. magic. <laughs> yeah. So that's, re- that's really, really fun. So what is the favorite place, your favorite place that you have ever traveled to? Like when you go out or you travel, like I know you love nature. Mm-hmm. And so if you look back on your whole life and you think, where is that place that literally you felt awe? Uh, I have been very lucky um, to get to travel to a number of different places, but what's popping up in my head right now is Croatia. Mm. Um, That's my husband and I went there like a year after we got married as a honeymoon and just the water and the cliffs and everything. It's, it's almost unbelievable to see it. It was so gorgeous there. Oh, and they have beautiful. really good food. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful scenery, great nature and good food. Mm-hmm. So you can't lose. <laughs> can't lose. Right. It's right. perfect. That's perfect. Okay. So one last question. Well, actually two. Um, and that would be, and then these are like all my fun questions. Cause I love um, creativity and improv as we all know. So if, your partner was going to describe you as a kind of tree. What kind of tree would he say you are? What represents you? I feel like he would pick something very sturdy. Um, What's flashing in my mind are like the redwoods. Um, Mm. Just they may, they're quiet and still, but they persevere. Yes. Yes. That totally fits. And it's interesting because he sees you that way. 
Mm-hmm. But yet when all of these doubts and questioning that we were just talking about show up, it's hard for you to feel that even though that's you. So that's part of that taboo disconnect, inner disconnection that you're talking about in your new book and that we've been talking about on this episode is that what's really happening, reality, and then what's going on inside of us sometimes can be not the same. Mm-hmm. And it's okay to talk about it. Yeah. All right. So, um, we're going to create a billboard and you created a billboard in the last one for the smart people dating. But if we were going to create a billboard for the, for parents and for parents and gifted kids and people going through some of the similar struggles you've talked about, what kind of billboard would we create for them that comes from your heart? I always come back to this idea that you're not alone. And with the right people or the right help, things will get better. Mm, That's true. You're not alone. Even when your brain says nobody else is experiencing it or you are alone, that's a lie. You are not alone. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with you. Right. That's the other piece. Yeah. Nothing wrong with you. I say that a lot. There's no, there's nothing wrong with you. It's okay. (laughs) Right. Totally. Well, everybody, you've been listening to Dr. Julia Hodgson who um, is an expert in so many things and who shared with us all about the taboos. And there's more, but we covered enough for one episode. And I wanna thank you for being on the show and sharing so openly and, and inspiring people to really speak up and talk about things and receive help that you're really not alone even if you feel like you are. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. (laughs) <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I can't wait for your book to come out and I will be reading it because I think we all need to read it, whether we're new parents, going to be parents or people without kids or whatever, because the more awareness there is, the more support there is for people. That's my take on it. So if you're listening to this podcast, buy your book. That's <laughs> the way it is, right? Okay, everybody. So remember to keep your face to the sun so the shadows fall behind you because you're a rock star. You're here on purpose with a purpose. So go out there and speak up and receive help and make sure that you don't hide because you're a bright lighthouse. Till the next episode, be well. Thank you for listening. I trust you gained some valuable inspiration and information. Please join me and other visionaries in the Someone Gets Me Facebook group. Or for more information on my services and additional episodes, visit someonegetsme.com. Again, thanks for listening.